As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 165 is the amazing Paula Cole. She was Peter Gabriel's touring backup vocalist in the early 90s, released her first solo album in 1994, and with her second one, This Fire from 1996, she got all the accolades. She won a Grammy. She got this song, I Don't Want to Wait, that you're hearing right now, to be the theme song for the TV show Dawson's Creek, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, was her other huge hit. But she has released 10 solo albums. We're going to start out by talking about Blues in Grey from her 2019 album Revolution, then Father from her album Seven from 2015, then we'll look back to a track from This Fire, Hush, 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 that features Peter Gabriel, and conclude by listening to one of her most recent 2021's American Quilt. The song is Hidden in Plain Sight, introduced by a bit of the folk song Steal Away. For more information, please see paulacole.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. Or if you really like what you hear, you can get the ad-free feed through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. It will also get you access to my extensive song notes for all the recent episodes. I will have played a little bit of I Don't Want to Wait from this fire 1996 just to orient folks. We do want to get to Revolution 2019. That's your last sort of Originals heavy album. We'll talk about the more recent one after that. But Blues in Gray was the song you picked on it. Can you say a little to orient us about that journey from way back then to, you know, what, what is actually going on in, at the point of revolution here? I think writing for social justice is just a vital aspect in being a writer. It kind of delineates, in my humble opinion, artists from just being entertainers. And that in a lifetime, and if you're committed to the lifetime you know, worshiping at the altar of music and you're a writer, you're a lifer writer, then I think at some point it's a wonderful thing to weave in social justice writing. And so I do so from time to time. Like I did so on my Amen album and that was unexpected, I guess, at the time. And, and I've done so again, kind of coming up to the 2020 elections that was released in 2019 and, and the schism we feel, the division we feel in our country. And I felt it was important for me to just weigh in as an artist, because as Picasso says, artists are the politicians of the future. It's important that we weigh in, that we give melodies and for people to sing relief, hope, togetherness. You know, ultimately, I hope that music brings people together. Sometimes it divides us. But anyway, revolution was another social political statement for me that I needed to make to be my complete self. Sometimes it means shedding some audience and I'm 
comfortable with that. I've done that a few times. I need to be authentically myself. And I go through eras over the course of my career and my lifetime. But within Revolution are a couple of extremely personal songs. And one of them is Silent. And one of them is Blues and Gray. And Blues and Gray, you know, like Carl Jung says, one of the greatest drivers of a life is the unfinished hopes and dreams of our parents. And that includes grandparents and and great-grandparents. And especially for us women who come after the unfinished hopes and dreams of not only our mothers, but our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers and so on and so forth. It's, It's this enormous legacy. And I named my daughter Charlotte after my great-grandmother. And so I'm singing that song for her. And uh, she was a brilliant pianist. The song's about her. It's about kind of her whispering through time to me in my ear about having a life and a career, one that she couldn't have. And I just love to play it too. It's like a a nice 6-8 feel. And it just feels really good rolling off the fingers on the piano. I'd love to play it live. She was a beautiful pianist, so I'm kind of playing the piano for her and extending the dream and the hopefully giving some completion to her unfinished hopes and dreams. Here's 
Yeah, let's talk about is just that initial piano roll that starts the whole thing off, this recurrent riff. I mean, the whole song has so many literal ups and downs. That's sort of the scene. Are we going to have this descending guitar line? We're going to have this swirling. Can you say a little about your thought in constructing that initial riff in this overall arrangement? I try to approach songwriting from different aspects. So I'm not so repetitive. And like Tom Waits says, our fingers are like old dogs. They go and they rest in the same places. And, you know, often I find my fingers resting on the same places on the keyboard. I do try to vary that. But with this one, my hands did go like old dogs to the same places. They, and they went to all the black keys. It's wonderful to play pentatonic on the black notes on the piano. It's really tactile and fun. So it's like in an E flat minor. And it's one where I kind of rarely stretch out and solo on piano because I'm diffident as a, a pianist. I feel like it's a lifelong mission to be a better pianist. I was never as good as my sister. You know, maybe that still that childlike inferiority complex still weighs on me, but I feel like I always could be a better piano player. So I pushed myself to stretch and solo out on that. And my hands went to the same places, but they came up with this six, eight riff that it is, it's like rolling. It feels like rolling green hills. And I love what Chris Bruce added on the acoustic. Well, and that drum part is obviously follows that rolling theme. Is he playing with brushes, I assume, there? Or? You know, that's one of the rare times I did not play with Jay Bellarose. And Jay Bellarose is like my right arm musically. He's been playing with me since I was 19. Now he plays like on everything T-Bone. He's on, he was on Raising Sand, and now he's on Raise the Roof, the new Plant Kraus collaboration. But he's my longtime collaborator. But this is by a young drummer by the name of Max Weinstein, and he's brilliant. He reminds me of young Jay, actually. Yes, he's just so beautifully picking up on that. The 16th notes. And yeah, that beautiful subdivision of the 6-8. It's beautiful. I don't know. It's just one that plays itself musically. When you're working out the arrangement, I mean, like that descending guitar line, dun, 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 like are you kind of singing instrumentally at them to sort of suggest parts? That electric part came out of Chris Bruce's brain. And that's why I play with these magnificent players is because they're all like producers in their own realm. They're all such beautiful thinkers, musicians that they come up with these parts that helped craft the song in a way. The song is complete, but they add this other element. And talking to the audience, I tell them about my great-grandmother, Charlotte. And I ask them, like, do you have a mother or a grandmother or a great-grandmother with unfinished hopes and dreams. And they all do. They all feel very connected to that. And knowing that those of us who do have a voice today are, are fortunate. I remember Joni Mitchell talking about that in interviews, seeing her mother kick the door. She was so frustrated. She didn't have a voice in the world. Her grandmother's dreams never fully fleshed. And that led to Joni putting her daughter up for adoption and dedicating herself to the career because it was just too hard. It was just too hard. And she had that rare opportunity of having a career. And so I know that I have a rare opportunity. And so I'm a voice, not just for myself, but for my mom, who's an artist and only got her first museum show 
until she was 78 years old. She's a beautiful artist. And her mother before her was just a housewife, didn't get to have a dream. And Charlotte was one of the first women admitted to Yale before they even allowed women into the college in 1969, which is egregiously late. But they would let women into the music school. And Charlotte was such a talented pianist that they let her into the music school. Like This was early turn of the century, early 1900s. But as soon as she got engaged, you know, man, she had to leave school. She had to dedicate herself to being a housewife. It's just kind of unthinkable now. She was offered to tour with orchestras, but that was like shameful. Why would you go out on the road with a bunch of men? Because you know how scary and terrible men are. <laughs> anyway, I'm just joking because I, I live on the road with men. But um, I'm here because of that mu- musical legacy. And I talk to the audience about it and they... They always applaud. It's just, there's zeitgeist, there's feeling. We all have mothers and grandmothers that didn't get to fulfill their dreams. So it was important for me to write for her, to name my daughter for her. So is this something that could have happened to any album or was it because you're in the mode of revolution in particular that like, if you didn't tell me this was a personal story, the fact that you're talking about fields of cotton, you're talking about people whose dreams are not being fulfilled, you know, it, it could be speaking to a general feminist issue or something like that. Again, were you in the mode of, I'm in social commentary mode, but I'm going to do a personal song that's in there? Or is it just a coincidence that this showed up on this album? I love your observations of the lyric. You know, I think there is a very thin line between personal and universal. And sometimes when you do get it right, when you manage to write a good song, then the personal does become universal, even with high detail about your own personal life. Yes, it could definitely be interpreted that way. And that's a a wonderful way to look at it. Perhaps I was in that mindset. I think that's a really good question. And maybe I always am trying to give voice to those without a voice. That's just partly why I do what I do, I think. And when I teach, because I teach writing classes, that's a huge point for me to make with these young students. The future is, you know, it's all good to try to find your deepest truth and amen to that. But I hope at some point, you know, that the young writer will also have the empathy and the compassion to look in other people's lives and write for them. Take on the mantle of being a true artist that way. So this six, eight rolling riff has such a momentum to it. And you let it really seethe at the end of the song. Just, you know, let's repeat this over. But to then put a chorus in there, it's a pretty clever construction that it's basically like, let's do a little, I wrote chordal jazz break. I mean, it's just two chords. The pre-chorus is just these two chords and then blues and great, the tagline, that's the whole chorus. But just something to break up, you know, the endless rolling meadows. I know if you really deconstruct it, there's not much of a song. <laughs> there's like, it's like a verse with a refrain. And then the rolling riff. That's how I think of it. And then it moves into this different instrumental section where the piano solos and it goes to the flat seven and it kind of opens up in a more major feel away from the minor feel, which is like the afterlife, you know, and hope. Okay, so that's what this whole end of this song, I mean, it's over a minute of returning to those two chords and then 
opening it up, as you say, and I put arpeggiation soup. Like you, you know, there's more guitars in there. There's not a banjo is there. There's a, there's at least a lot of arpeggiation going on and you're sort of matching it with piano. So it just becomes this very thick texture. Any thoughts about how that came together? Is that just like jamming with the band a little, or was this a purely studio? You've laid down, this is the length, fill it up. It was intuitive. And actually, when we recorded this, we were on tour, and we had three or four days off in Florida. And I'm thinking, okay, we can fly everybody home. Or what I ended up doing was renting an Airbnb house in Clearwater, and we went into a studio because I had some song ideas. These were young song ideas. And they heard my demos, which is just me at the piano live, like into my cell phone. That's usually what I do. I send my live cell phone recorded demos unless I want to get fancier. And then I use logic and put a few more things on. But usually it's just live. And we went into a, a studio in Florida. And that's why Max played drums is because he's from Florida and he happened to be home then. So. It was very intuitive. It was collaborative. And they were completely working from the spine, which is the song, the piano, the vocal. And I, I work with players, you know, whom I can trust innately like that. And then if there's something that doesn't quite feel right, we work it out in the studio. So it, in a sense, I'm a jazz musician with my very close quartet or trio or quintet. And it's a very live feeling. We're headed into the studio actually. Um, February 1st in LA. I know it's like times of COVID. And so we're trying to be really careful so that nobody gets sick and sabotages the session, but hopefully everything goes well and I'll be in LA. I've just done the same thing. I've just written a batch of new songs and I record them with my cell phone at the piano and try to make them as articulate and complete with just that backbone of piano, song, voice. And we're going to create again with you know my beautiful beautiful colleagues these incredible gentlemen jay bellarose on drums chris bruce on guitar ross gallagher on upright bass and i'm gonna have rich hinman on pedal steel i love writing i really am a lifer i'm dedicated to that even if it like costs me money sometimes to make the albums and they they don't sell i'm still going to generate I don't want to be fearful or stagnate. I just want to keep getting back up on the horse and keep making music. Well, let's get the second song out there. Father, this just kicks my ass. every. <laughs> I had put this originally as our finale, but I'm glad you wanted to spend more time on it and focus on it. The thing that I'm emotionally reacting to is this increasingly, I don't want to say frantic, but just emotional chorus. But that's on top of this very church-like, almost Christmassy, another piano-driven rolling intro. but. You know, it's called Father and it has this sort of religious imagery, Holy Father. You know, this is what it suggests to me. Can you say a little about where you're at with this song before we hear it? Yes. And this is another song from the catalog. And this is from my album Seven, which was released in 2015 and is one of the lesser known albums because I just, I did not put a dime of promotion into it. I just quietly released it to my fans and then, you know, continued with my life. And actually, I'm remastering Seven right now with Bob Ludwig at Gateway and we're going to press vinyl for its seventh anniversary in 22 because there's no vinyl and it's a fan favorite. This album, it's like a soft and gentle album. This song is not necessarily one of the gentle songs, but 
overall, it's, it's very acoustic and highly personal. It moves between two time fields of a six, eight and a four, four. And, you know, they're related. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. So it's like. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two. It moves between these two time fields, like with the gentle church, like absolutely hope and dream of what father can be. And father as a concept, that's so deep. I actually ask students to write a father song and there's often a lot of pain in it. And it makes sense that we look to religion and spirituality with a father figure because it's often so lacking in our reality, a positive one. Now, I, I'm so fortunate to have a strong, dedicated father. You know, he raised me as the son he never had. But I write this song not for him, but for my daughter's father. And there was a lot of heartbreak in that. I've written a lot about it. I've spoken a lot about that. And I still need to write songs about it because it was like one of those profoundly painful things in my life. And I, I think I wrote that song on Father's Day, just all of the, the pain kind of rushing in when he appears in our life again, like expecting to be loved, even though he's like, he just never shows up. And then here's Father's Day and he wants to come and beat his chest. It didn't, doesn't make any sense and it just hurts. So what do you do with that pain? You look to express it somewhere that's constructive. And that helps you heal and maybe helps others heal too. So I go to the writing and out comes this song. It's on behalf of my feelings and probably also my daughter's feelings. When I'm encouraging others to write father songs, I talk about this just to show like it's okay to let out the pain. It's okay to be vulnerable and talk about the disappointment and the hurt. It's important to heal yourself through the writing.
So that's funny that this starts out with the healing. Like we're going to, you know, we have the nice, I'm in church piano part. And then we open it up very subtly that this verse that establishes, I had written even Fleetwood Mac somewhere in here. Cause there's some of the time there's kind of a muted guitar, you know, cause it has that propulsive four, four thing. Just trip you out. But then combining that with the Christmas thing and then with this chorus, you know, that's just a great progression through the song. Do you have any yeah, thoughts about that structure or, you know, how many times am I going to go back to the verse or any thoughts about how you put those pieces together? Mm. I understand the Fleetwood Mac reference. That's an interesting thought. I think with the repetition of the chorus at the end, I can hear it like with the way um, there's a tambourine that comes in that accentuates like the double time, like the 16th note of the 4-4. I, I get it. And like the electric guitars and the background vocals coming in, but it's like, we take it and take it and take it again. It's just growing and growing and like a, you know, something off of rumors, I guess. Do I think of sections like that when I'm writing? Not. So it would never be the case that you just like, oh, I had this chorus from another thing. And let me tack this on here because I didn't like the rest of the song. It's, It's all more organic than that. Yeah, I would say I'm more in the flow. And lately, what I've been doing is writing not so much journalistically with ink and pen or pencil and paper. I'm going to my computer keyboard because I'm a fast typist and I find it's just much more immediate. Like the typing speed is fast. So I'm able to not be so ponderous or analytical. I just fly, like my fingers fly and I'm plugged into my subconscious. And so my lyric writing is much more fast now because I'm, I've moved out of pen and paper. Sometimes I do lyrics first now. I like to approach songwriting from different tangents, different vectors, so that I'm 
varying my approach so I'm not too redundant. So that's everything from different keys to checking in with my tempos, my time signatures, like that mechanical stuff for sure. And then I look at the album. Once I choose the songs, like sequencing is so important to me. What are the keys? What is the feeling of the lyric that moves into the next song? My sequence is vital. What's the journey of the listener? Is there a protagonist in all of this album listening? And what is the journey of the protagonist? How does she start or he start? How does how do they end? Where is the listener at the end of this album? And then as a writer, sometimes I'll try to write from melody first, like Burt Bacharach, and force myself to stay away from harmonic instruments. And I'll go on walks and I'll keep time with my footsteps and I'll sing to myself like a crazy person and I'll sing melodies and I'll sing in time to my footsteps. And I try to craft a melody that way and then bring it back to a harmonic instrument. And I try sometimes to write in an AABA old-fashioned style. I just did that for the new album that I'm working on. So do you remember with this one, what was the sequence? This does look like a literary sitting at the keyboard stream but does that mean that there's a laptop on top of the piano? Because it also sounds like I started with this piano riff and got your imagination going on that. So what was the, what was the actual sequence? Is it you get some of the musical material out, then write the lyrics, and then finalize the music? Is that, do you remember with this one? I think it was pianistic. And then intuitively, you know, Father came out as I'm playing. Sure. So that was like the lightning bolt, right? That intuition process. So I knew, okay, aha. And then I don't know why sometimes like the police, they would play with feels like sometimes they would be playing the upbeats on an intro and you didn't know where the one was. And then they'd, they'd hit it and, and it, you'd realize, you know, the one is in a different place than you thought. So it was so cool. I love that. Or I love also playing with time, like starting in the, t- the six, eight or the 12, eight, however you feel it. And then it moving bang, like an uppercut to four, four. I just love that stuff. I'm like a very rhythmic person. I'm a rhythm player most of the time on on the piano. I just have a strong sense of rhythm. My left leg is always going. (laughs) It's just always going. I've been making music with Jay on drums since I was 19. So it's like he and I were just a rhythm pair. And so I love that stuff. I love playing with rhythm and being attentive to it. I think I was probably channeling some kind of police thought with the flip into 4-4. But putting a upright bass over this. Yeah. And then I think I went to the computer and out flew lyrics when I was thinking about father. And it was also like a painful time around Father's Day and my daughter's father appearing out of nowhere. Like, And I just needed a place to be safe with my pain and constructive with my pain. And then there's, you know, the spiritual aspects, the church-like aspects, and there's the police. Like Blues and Gray, it's a personal song, but you're sort of writing it. I don't think this is from your point of view, right? You were saying this is sort of representing your, how old was she at the time? 14 or something like that. Okay. So not an adult who would be writing her own song. You know, of course, it's very common to like, I'm going to write this as a piece of literature. I'm going to imaginatively put myself in the shoes of somebody, but putting yourself in the shoes of a, of a family member that you live with, did you then talk about it with her or how, how does this actually work? I mean, I guess when you're a parent, you really feel your child's feelings so deeply. It's like they're your own. And she and I have been a you and me club for years after we went through that painful time. 
so that anything that happens to her, I feel like it's happening to me. And there's so much in that. I felt hurt and I know she felt hurt. And I speak in my music, I do it kind of symbolically. And sometimes it's even hard to comprehend. Like people ask me, what do the lyrics mean? Because they're very poetic. It takes some reading a little bit. And like what comes up for me is when I wrote Hush, 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 and I know we're going to speak about that more, but that was my first song that was covered by, you know, major artist. So Herbie Hancock and Annie Lennox covered Hush, Hush, Hush. And Herbie called me from the studio they were recording in, in London, because they didn't know what the song was about. Because I was too cryptic about the poetry of my lyrics. And once you know, it's very obvious. But if you don't know, sometimes it takes almost a poet's interpretation. So I feel like, Father, there's enough poetic license in there that affords me some privacy. I That's insane because I write such personal things and yet songwriting feels so private to me. And then I put them out in the world. So it makes no sense and it's insane, but it's just like performing. I'm up there on a stage and yet I feel I'm in my own bubble. It's the weirdest. Let me ask you how that translates into the vocal style you choose on a song because your voice is very flexible and you could sing exactly this chorus in a very operatic but you chose that, no, the chorus is going to be pain. You know, it's not your most straightforwardly virtuosic vocal performance. It is all about the feeling. And then you're almost whispering some of the verses. Like, it's the kind of thing that, you know, if I do something like that, it's usually because I've written the song right then and I'm recording it right then. But I assume you did that for the demo and then months go by and you actually record this. So has it become sort of a piece of theater in terms of choosing how you're going to sing it? Or is it always the same from the demo? With this one in particular is what I'm asking. I didn't think about how I was going to sing it. I just sang it and I felt, I feel connected. It was later, like my producer's brain thought, I'm going to put a lovely harmony on that. And with like a good amount of reverb to give it a church-like feeling. And, you know, of course it's on the word father. So it connotes all this other meaning. But that was more of my post-writing producer's brain. And when I sing it, I sing it from an honest place or an angsty place. Like, I do feel that that's part of my purpose is like being a truth teller. And it's not comfortable for me or for the listeners sometimes. It's not necessarily the most successful path. I'm not going to be like a happy entertainer up there. I'm a truth teller. And it's salty and it's intense, but that's just who I am. You know, I'm a wound picker. (laughs) I'm someone who rips off the Band-Aid. So, yes. And with acoustic bass, I think you had mentioned that. That band is Jay Bellarose and Dennis Crouch on acoustic. They are the rhythm section with uh, Raising Sand. And Dennis, he approaches upright like, you know, he's playing in Muscle Shoals, or like James Jamerson, but on Upright. He's so soulful and swinging, but on Upright. And I love Upright. My dad played multiple instruments, but he, uh, he was bass player. And I grew up with an Upright in the living room. And I just love the instrument. I've Since that album in 2015, I've, I've not gone back to electric, really. Like I tour with an acoustic bass player now. Just to make it more equipment to haul around. I, I started on upright bass, so I 
hauling that thing around in a Toyota. Oh, yeah. Well, bless your heart. You know, what we do is much to the chagrin of my bass player, Ross, but we rent in every venue, in every city. So it's really important for him to, you know, rush to soundcheck and like get to know that bass. So he's got his hands all over the bass. And it's always the question, do you like the bass? (laughs) So, no, I mean, a a real acoustic, it's like a woman. It's a soul. It's breathing and living and gorgeously acoustic. You can bow, arco. It's percussive. You know, he sometimes he covers the two and four, you know, with his fingers on the body of the bass. I just love it. One more little structural question before we move on to the third song. Adding the sort of extra lilacs and hidden rooms, scent of loss, whiff of doom, that you put this in the middle of, we're repeating the, it's not the chorus, the chorus is take it, take it again, but the father, what you started with, but you put this extra sort of little verse over that, but it's a little understated. I mean, it's the whiff of doom. It could be, can you say a little about just your, your choice of, I can't just say father, 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 and have it, have the piano noodle around and then wrap it up. You have to put this little thing lyrically to wrap it up. Yes, at the very end, it's taking me into something sensory, almost like a funeral parlor with memories and smells and death. And I love writing, so I love to add, you know, something unexpected at the very end to leave off on the song in some, with something new or some, you know, something unsaid, or I like to vary a chorus lyric. So it gives the listener more, it gives you more of the story. I was feeling connected to loss so profoundly that it almost, it's like I opened a door and we are in a funeral parlor and we close that door again and we end the song. So Something like that. It's just a window to a feeling. We've got one more song to discuss in detail, but before that, let's stop and do the ad break. For I must tell you about the Nebia by Moen Quattro Showerhead to transform your showering experience. If you live in a chilly place like I do, you cannot do what Paula does and go walk around outside extensively now to write your songs. Not in this weather. You need to do it in the shower. So why not upgrade your showering experience and save a lot of water in the process? Quattro is the world's best high-pressure water-saving shower, and it starts at just $119. Quattro was designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water. I have one of these. It is called the Quattro because it has four spray modes. It's got two powerful high-pressure spray modes. In addition to the popular Nebbia Spa Spray, I've got the hand shower version. You could use a fixed rain shower one as well, available in five beautiful finishes. Each and every mode of this Quattro saves 40 to 50% of water compared to a traditional shower, and yet is powerful enough to remove shampoo from even the thickest hair. I prefer the Spa Spray mode. It really fills the space, allowing me to dwell on the humiliations of my day and what I should have said in response to things people said to me that I didn't actually say. Uh, the installation is very easy. It's a three-minute process. It's as easy as changing a light bulb. It's also got other awesome sustainable bathroom accessories, such as the new quick-dry earth mat, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats, and more. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. 
Go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. It is a great deal to jump on. Again, go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. Let's get back to the show. Well, let's get the third song out there. So Hush, 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 as you'd mentioned from your most famous album, This Fire 1996, with a special guest. You were saying that this was a little cryptic, I guess, between the different verses. I wasn't really sure, like, wait, are you still talking about the same thing? But, you know, it's clearly some sort of lullaby-related thing. It's strange that we're doing this right after Father. This is Hush, Hush, Hush says your daddy's touch. There's a, a thematic, not a continuity, but uh, at least the theme of fatherhood is in there somewhere. Can you say a little about what this is about overall? You know, I love the way Jane Campion, the director, she will fine-tune the microscope to a small moment, and it says everything about the plot or the entire movie. And I, like a small moment will reveal so much. In the verses of Hush, 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 I'm like fine-tuning the microscope to be looking in on a micro level about something and looking at the body, looking at the hands of someone dying without saying they're dying or without saying AIDS. I'm describing what's going on in the fine detail. Long white arms losing their strength and form. A 60-year man on 20-year-old skin. I'm describing the person so that the reader of the poem will understand kind of intuitively, hopefully, you know, not always, it's not always easy. What I'm speaking about here is a young man, a 20-year-old man dying of AIDS without saying those things because it's sad and terrible enough as it is. And I wrote the song when I was living in San Francisco in the early 90s when another viral pandemic was sweeping And it was terrifying and terrible. And there was a lot of fear. And we were losing people. My sister was a hospice home health nurse. And uh, when I went to the gay pride parade in San Francisco in the early 90s, when those hospice nurses would march, you just never saw the parade goers cheer like they did for those nurses. It was um, still unstoppable. And I had a friend who died of AIDS too young. And it was just very shocking for me. And what do I do with my feelings? They're so overwhelming feelings for me. And I have trouble articulating my feelings. So I, I go to music because it, it just helps me say what I can't say. And so I wrote this song. I was living in a loft over a gas station at the corner of 17th and South Van Ness in San Francisco. I had three roommates and we would separate our living spaces with curtains. And I wrote a lot that year. I was working at a bakery and living off of very little. I would eat half a burrito for lunch and half a burrito for dinner because it was $2.15 at the local taquerias in the Mission District. So I could get like a bean and rice burrito and fill it with salsa and just live very economically. And I really dedicated myself to my writing at that time. And I was highly generative. I wrote a lot of music then. Everything on Harbinger and even Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, which hadn't come out yet. And Hush, hush, hush at that time. So I wrote that because I was struggling with my feelings. And, and those verses set the stage of what's going on. And what's going on is that it's not just the death of the young man. It's the estrangement he has experienced with his family, with his father specifically, for being gay. And now he's dying. And there's an opportunity for the father and the son to come together. And so they do in this song. And that's the part that I added, the poetic license. 
since I added to my song, I made it more than just about losing my friend, but about the coming together between a father and son and choosing that, you know, reconciliatory moment. And then I have the father personified by Peter, Gabriel, he comes in on the bridge. And I, you know, I had been touring with Peter in 93 and 94. I was singing with him and singing like all the background parts and the duet parts on his Secret World Live. And we did some festivals like Woodstock and, you know, festivals in just all around the globe. It was incredible. I was 25 and I was seeing the world and I was his singer. And I learned so much, but I also learned that I really didn't want to be a backup singer. I wanted to be my own person and my own artist. So I concluded that in 94. I think we concluded with the 25th anniversary of Woodstock and we closed Woodstock with Biko. It was profound. You know, there were a quarter million people there with candles. It was just an incredible, incredible moment. I'll never forget. And I learned so much and I love him so dearly and I love his music so dearly. But I came back from that and I was working on my own album, which was this fire. And I decided to produce it myself. And I asked him to come and he came to a studio in New York and he sang that bridge of Hush Hush Hush. And he personified the father so beautifully. He has such a magnificent instrument. His voice is is paternal in the best way. It's authoritative in the best way and full of sorrow and in the best way. I love him. And uh, he did such a beautiful job. And and then the outro of the song, it does feel like, well, we're going to the heavens now. It feels like a movement to the afterlife. And we move into a whole other chord progression of major sevens. I'm cycling these four major seven chords. So it feels very ethereal and swirling. That's when usually live we have a drum solo. Like it just, it expands. And we even move into a different time feel, you know, again, from like moving between 12, 8 and 4, 4. I love doing that, like I said. So when Herbie was covering this, when he decided to cover it, he got it immediately. Like he's such a visual musician and he, he saw the ending as the afterlife. He understood that. And so he takes this beautiful piano solo on his version and Annie Lennox sings the melody so beautifully. Gosh. What a great honor, you know, those two, some of my favorite artists on the planet. Long white arms losing their strength and form. Sixty-year men on twenty-year-old skin. Skeleton, your eyes have lost their warmth. Look to your father for some support. Hush, 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 says your daddy's touch. Sleep, 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 says the hundredth sheep. Peace, peace. Girl. All your 
Let me ask you about this very noteworthy musical choice in here, which is putting this descending clarinet in. That really makes it a, a very otherworldly. It's not warm in the way, I don't know, is that the symbol of death? What is where did the, the idea even come for that particular sound at that spot? I don't remember where that idea came from, but I do know that like my clarinet is this, it's like my cameo. It's my Alfred Hitchcock cameo on every album. My clarinet makes its appearance and it represents some part of me that's a little awkward, a little childlike. Usually I'm playing in the low registers, but on this one, I was playing it more like an oboist, you know, like a classical melody. And it's at the top of its range. 
So this one kind of kicked my ass. You know, I had to have the tight, tight, I'm sure, and hit those high C's. But it, I feel like it's more of a classical motif for this song. That's all I can say. I don't remember where the idea came from. I just know that I need to put my clarinet, like a little icing on every cake I bake. <laughs> no, I think uh, you, you've answered the question. I didn't realize that was actually you playing the clarinet. So the fact that that is something that is in your back pocket that you can pull out if like a piano riff just isn't going to do, it's your, your equivalent of the harmonica, what a lot of guitarists will pull that out and just put that on one thing. But just having a single note, whether it's woodwind or brass or whatever, but instrument to, to be able to put out as a, a substitute for your own voice when it, exceptional circumstances occur, I guess. It's a, so that explains it rather than, let's get in somebody, put an oboe there. You know, it just seemed v- kind of out of left field. But knowing that that is actually part of you, then that makes a lot more sense. Sure. And now I'm asking myself, okay, where am I going to put my clarinet on this next album? <laughs> I don't know yet. It's kind of fun. It's always like a little fun thing I do. Kind of tuck it in somewhere. So going into the, the second verse, this big, thick keyboard shimmer comes in, which the fact that Peter Gabriel is involved, that's kind of what I associate. You know, I listen to his uh, passion soundtrack just, you know, down to a, I would say I, I wore it out, but it's the CD. You can't really do that. But yeah, those choices of like what thick synth, you know, what is the warmest possible sound that I could bring in here? Yeah. What is your sort of philosophy on that? Do you bring in somebody or it's you browsing through the patches, deciding which one is going to fit the bill? It's usually me browsing the patches and it was my Juno, I think. Because that's joyful. Like, ooh, how, you know, what sound are we going to create here? That's a lot of fun. And also, we wanted that bridge to feel kind of angelic and important. And it goes to the major and in comes Peter's voice, which is so commanding and gorgeous. So, yeah, we just wanted to dress it up a little bit. So, I had been talking about the verse, but yeah, when he comes in, then you have these multiple cellos and violas or something swearing oh. it sounds like a whole, there's a whole string quartet although it's yes, sort of surprisingly light on the violins until sort of at least in the middle then you can hear some higher notes yes any thoughts on on how that got arranged even what the procedure was was that a total like after his voice even deciding to put that on a string quartet and it was very simple we did it quickly and um, that was my boyfriend at the time he was a beautiful arranger and so he just made a simple little string quartet arrangement for that moment and it does start low and moves up but I was pulling from my pool of friends and colleagues I'd gone to Berkeley College of Music and met a lot of incredible people there so I pulled on their talents and he made that lovely string quartet well, that's real dedication to a, a scene within the song. Usually if you've bothered to gather string players, like they're at least going to play through the whole song. But to say, no, no, this is just this little part we're going to highlight. I don't think they show up elsewhere. I did not specifically listen for that. but No, they didn't. Okay. It was just that one little bit. <laughs> yes, it's dedication to that moment of the album, moment of the song. Can we introduce... Just the thing that we're going to leave folks with. So I wanted to play something from your most recent album, American Quilt. 
it is a mostly, you know, you've had a couple instances here where you're doing a lot of standard covers to <laughs> folk songs. And this was the one on here that at least, so it's Steal Away slash Hidden in Plain Sight. So Steal Away is a, do you know what time period that is from originally, this folk song? You know, I don't know, but okay. um, I mean, it's because about the, the Underground Railroad, right? Steal Away is a gospel song. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's not just steal away to Jesus, it's steal away to Canada. So there, mm-hmm. you know, that probably was born out of America's troubled history of, you know, enslaving people. And so it's a gospel song, I would imagine, from the mid 19th century, I'm going to guess. And that serves as an intro into Hidden in Plain Sight, which is a song about the history of slave quilts, which I was so interested and shocked to to learn about and i wanted i'm here i am like on an album full of covers folk songs standards they have such variety and it reflects you know america being such a melting pot but i didn't find enough representing you know the underbelly of our history and i didn't i couldn't find any songs about slave quilts so i wrote one even though it's not necessarily my story to tell but sometimes it's important as a writer to have compassion and empathy and to write stories where there are none in song. So this is a song about the hanging of the quilts that served as guides and maps to the Underground Railroad to get to Canada. And every verse represents a quilt square because the quilt squares represented knowledge like what tools you needed to bring, what kind of wagons you should be looking for, who are your conductors, how do you follow nature to find safety? You follow the geese migrating north in the spring, you follow animal tracks because they'll take you to water, they'll take you to hide. So you would have corresponding quilt squares, like bear trail is a quilt square. And that's about following the path of animals or flying geese, telling you the direction to which you follow, and so on and so forth. So this song is a series of quilt squares, of verses, and it takes you to Canada. And that's what, you know, the arrival point at the end, which then moves into this very heavenly sounding finale. To quote Wikipedia for the audience, uh, Steal Away, composed by Wallace Willis, a slave of a Choctaw freedman in the old Indian territory sometime before 1862. And according to this, that this is one of many songs with hidden codes to give folks hidden messages for slaves to run away on their own or with the Underground Railroad. So the fact that, yeah, this was supposed to not be overt, but then you saw that and you knew the context and you're like, no, I'm going to expand this and write a piece of historical fiction to you know make this into an eight minute epic. That's real dedication to not just honoring the folk tradition, but making explicit what was already sort of in the purpose of it. Well, thanks. You know, I... I wrote my song first, and then I came upon Ah, okay. Steal Away, and I thought, this is so perfect that it, I'm going to just record it a cappella as an intro, and it then moves into Hidden in Plain Sight. So it came after. All right, like, so <laughs> I'm, I'm wrong, but it still is no, a great piece of synchronicity. Cool. The caboose became, you know, the, the intro. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really loved going through your stuff. Of course, you know, with the Peter Gabriel Association, he's just one of my favorite artists growing up. And I hear so much of that spirit of the arrangements and the warmth and just the independent spirit in your stuff as well. And 
was just so overjoyed to have discovered these later albums that, you know, I like most of the world was aware of your earlier stuff, but didn't even know this was a thing. So I'm glad to uh, be able to play some small part in getting the word out. I appreciate that. I've been kind of prolifically dedicated to my process and I, I release work, you know, every couple of years now on my own label, although BMG is distributing me right now, but I'm dedicated to it. I just want to keep on the path of being an artist. And I don't care if one is successful or not. I'm just going to keep expressing my truth. So thank you for that. All right, here it is. Steal Away slash Hidden in Plain Sight from American Quilt 2021. Steal away. Steal away. Steal away to Jesus. Steal away. Gather your coins, wrap a loaf of bread, your compass, your knife, bundle it all up in a ragged cloth. Leaf in spring when the geese fly north. Leaf in spring when the geese fly north. Zilla hangs the laundry out to dry She hangs ten quilts one at a time Memorize the pattern to make your way To the other side, to Canada, to steal away To the other side, to Canada, to steal away your tools look for your conductors to lead you the wagon wheels will carry you among spells of hay right below their noses to the Appalachians right below their noses to the Appalachians Back and walk a drunkard's path 
keep safe. Double back and walk a drunkard's path. Keep safe. To the borderline Walk the path of animals To water too high The geese will lead you north And lead you to hope Toward the setting sun to Cleveland Toward the setting sun to Cleveland Hidden in plain sight Hidden in plain sight
Thanks so much to Paula. What an honor to talk to her, a first-rate creative artist and someone who's into talking about the creative process. So that is a wonderful bonus for my format. You can hear more about what she's been up to at paulacole.com. I'm wondering if you enjoy this, if maybe you will go to the Apple Podcasts iTunes store. I think you can do it right on your mobile app and leave a nice rating or review for this podcast. If you don't know how to do that, there's a nice little review this podcast widget in the upper right of nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Again, to make sure you are hearing all of my episodes promptly, even if you're hearing this on the Partially Examined Life feed or at Open Culture or somewhere else, I'm hoping you will go subscribe directly to my podcast feed through one of the many links at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Or better yet, put your money where your ears are. That's not a saying. But you can avoid hearing me ever read ad copy again by getting the ad-free Patreon feed. That's patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. You would just be setting a small per-episode donation you can even max it out per month. So you can say, I'm only going to pay a dollar per month, even if Mark puts out five episodes, which I will not do. But theoretically, if I were to get enough support, I would go back to recording these every week rather than every other week. But it would have to be a lot of support. Anyway, I hope you patronize Paula and my other artists who likewise do what they do for the love of the art, but always appreciate your tangible support. I hope you're doing well, disease-free. Bearing the burdens of this often difficult life, my next episode will be with El Shankar, an amazing Indian-slash-international violinist, another Peter Gabriel collaborator. He's also played with Frank Zappa. He was with the jazz guitarist John McLaughlin in the 70s and has some star-studded solo albums. He has backed Springsteen, Elton John, many, many others. So look for that in two weeks. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Swooping up your morning light and say a little prayer for us. You know that if we are to stay alive, then see the love in every eye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.